Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. In today's conversation, we spoke with Dr. Annie Fenn, who is the founder of The Brain Health Kitchen, a one-of-a-kind cooking school that teaches recipes and lifestyle interventions that will help prevent cognitive decline. Dr. Fenn practiced as a board-certified OBGYN for 20 years, but then pursued her passion for the culinary arts. In this conversation, we talk about her journey and what inspired her to go from practicing OBGYN to focusing on culinary interventions. She walks us through the aspects of the mind diet and what foods are best for our brains, both to be at their optimal health and for preventing cognitive decline. Because we all come from different cultural backgrounds and cuisines, Dr. Fenn also talks about how we can still be healthy cooking our traditional diets, even if it isn't necessarily the Mediterranean diet. Dr. Fenn is doing amazing work, and it was such a pleasure to hear her unique path. She's an inspiration for us both. We really enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you do too. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast. Uh, we've been really looking forward to chatting with you for a few months now, and we're excited to jump into Brain Health Kitchen and everything that you do. Thanks, Amanda. Hi, Dan. It's really great to be here. So thank you for having me. It's so, so great to meet you. Um, we love following you on Instagram and we love your moose cookie. <laughs> um, <laughs> So we would love to just start off with, um, how did you transition from an OBGYN to doing work that you do today in Alzheimer's prevention? Well, I can't say it was perfectly intentional. You know how sometimes things in life happen and they just keep happening and then you really have to listen to what's going on. That's sort of what happened to me with my, my journey into brain health. I had been practicing obstetrics and gynecology for more than 20 years. And I really loved it. Like I truly loved it. I had a private practice in Jackson where I live. I had the same women who started with me. Much of them stayed with me for 20 years. So it's a really wonderful group of people to take care of. Um, And I was focused mostly on menopausal medicine in the last eight years, which is really intellectually stimulating and interesting. But 20 years in, I just felt like I needed a change. I, part of it was uh, being tied down by a schedule and that the day-to-day grind of being in the office, which I know a lot of doctors in practice can relate to. And also part of it was, I felt like I'd never had any time to um, pursue other passions that I love, like travel and cooking. Because I finished college early, I went straight into med school without any gap. I went straight into private practice. I literally just never ever took any breaks. So um, I just was itching to do something different with the creative part of my brain. And so, as you know, it's hard to practice OBGYN part-time. <laughs> I actually tried that. It doesn't work very well. Part of it is just a practical thing where the medical malpractice insurance is so expensive that you just basically can't make a living. Um, and so I decided to retire. And after I retired, I really knew that I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to pursue my love of cooking and I wanted to travel. And I wanted to spend time with my kids. So that's what I started up doing the first couple of years. I started a food blog. I ended up going to culinary school in Mexico, um, in Tuscany, Italy. And then I ended up studying at the Culinary Institute of America in San Antonio, Texas, and got really into beefing up my culinary skills and just 
becoming a better cook and a, with a wider breadth of knowledge. Um, I came back to town and started teaching culinary classes in my community. And then around 2015, um, I started doing some cooking classes through my local hospital for a new program called BrainWorks that they had put together. And this was a totally novel concept in 2015. It was actually the first community-based dementia prevention program in the country. And I was on board to do the culinary classes. So I started Brain Health Kitchen basically like in my kitchen at home, teaching a handful of really enthusiastic older adults how to eat better for long-term brain health. And that was the same year that my mom was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment and early form of dementia. It was the same year that the MIND diet study came out, which was a landmark study in the MIND diet by Dr. Martha Claire Morris and her team showing that eating a certain way can reduce your risk of dementia by as much as 53%. So with all of these things coming together, um, I really had an epiphany that what I should be doing is using my medical education and my love of cooking, my love of teaching cooking um, to help people age better and prevent dementia. First off, that is the coolest journey ever. <laughs> That's so cool. So I have two questions. What's the coolest thing that you learned in culinary school that you hadn't known before? And you're like, whoa, this is mind blowing. Okay. The coolest thing I learned was when I was learning how to cook in central Mexico in the mountains in a community called Tepotzlan, and they have a very vegetable forward cuisine there. It's very healthy. It's rich in grains and vegetables and beans, very little meat, very little seafood. They're really high in the mountains in central Mexico. And the thing that I learned to eat there was wheat la coche, which is the fungus that grows on corn and it's a delicacy there. And like, if you encountered that on a corn cob in the United States, you would be probably grossed out and throw it away. Like this is like rotted, it's gone bad, but there it's actually a delicacy and it's a mushroom that tastes like corn. It's a fungus, it's culinary mushroom. It tastes amazing. It's like the best of both the mushroom world and the corn world. And um, it's a delicacy there. So that was a really fun thing to learn. You can buy it at the farmer's markets there as easily as we would just go buy a bunch of carrots. Can you get it anywhere here in the U.S.? You, can, you, you know, there are some farmers in Northern California that are trying to cultivate it. Um, sometimes if you go out to a high-end restaurant, they'll have wheat la coche on the menu. And, you know, they, folk, they get it from these, um, this, these specific, you know, farmers that cater to restaurants, but no, you can't really get it around here. That's amazing. And that's how I learned to cook. When I went to Italy, my, my relatives are from Sicily. And so I have this strong pull that always takes me back to Italy. And the best way to learn how to cook, I learned was to go into people's kitchens and actually learn the traditional methods because they're cooking the way I'm trying to get everyone to cook now, you know, simply prepared foods that are based on um, seasonal healthy ingredients. And that's the best way to, to cook for brain health or any kind of health really. But in Italy, they really, really get the, uh, the vegetable-based cuisine down. It's really, they just do vegetables just right. Awesome. And we're going to get more into like the details of what you recommend people eat to protect their brain health. But before we jump into that, um, you had said that your mother was diagnosed with dementia, which I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but it's very interesting to see the difference between, um, Alzheimer's 
and women and men? And what is the difference between those diagnoses and how they present or how to prevent them? Because I know that the female brain is different than the male brain. The female brain is definitely different from the male brain, but in ways that we're that researchers are just starting to tease out. So five years ago, no one was really talking about this. And it's such an interesting aspect of the research on brain health and the development of Alzheimer's disease. Um, for one, we know that most Alzheimer's victims are female. Two thirds of all Alzheimer's victims are female. Um, and we used to think that was because women live longer than men. But in reality, you know, men are actually doing better with their lifespan. They used to succumb to cardiovascular diseases starting at midlife. And so the men who actually got to older age were sturdy, cardiovascular, healthy people who are less likely to get dementia as well. Um, but now what we're finding is the gap is closing between men and women's lifespans. And so that doesn't account for why so many women are getting Alzheimer's. We do know that when it comes to the genetic variant, APOE4, which is a gene variant that about 20% of the population carry, women are more vulnerable to the changes this gene variant has on their brain. Meaning if a woman has one copy of APOE4, she's just as likely to get Alzheimer's as a male or man who has two copies of it. And a woman with APOE4 is likely to get Alzheimer's five years earlier than a man with the same genetic diagnosis. So that's just one piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is that um, one of the most vulnerable times in a woman's, woman's life in terms of her brain health is around the time of menopause, which is something that I focused on in my practice for, for many years. And it's so interesting to me now that the studies are showing that when your estrogen levels start to fluctuate and decline in the perimenopause, which is the average seven year span before and after your last menstrual period. For most women, it starts around the age of 38 to 42 and is over by the age of 55 to 57. The average age of menopause being 51 and a half. So this perimenopausal period seems to be a really key time for women's brains because as their estrogen levels are plummeting at different times in the cycle and chronically over time as well, they're also starting to pile up things like amyloid protein in the brain and reduce glucose metabolism, both of which are biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease later. So it may be that some women have a genetic predisposition um, or are predisposed in ways we don't understand yet. And then menopause comes along and turns our world upside down and their brain really starts to suffer. And studies are now looking at what makes women's brains resilient enough to come out of that premenopausal period intact without cognitive decline and which women does this mark the beginning of decline for the rest of their lives that's such an important area of research as we try to prevent alzheimer's wow um and i know that this is kind of a controversial topic but what do you think about hormone estrogen replacement therapy in perimenopausal women? Well, I've been following that literature ever since I was in residency and it's controversial in some parts of medicine, but for most OBGYNs who've been following this for a long time, it's not very controversial at all. You know, the studies have always been very pro hormone therapy for certain women. 
the key is doctors and patients need to know what's the appropriate time to start it and who are the appropriate candidates. So we know from longitudinal data and many, many large studies like the Women's Health Initiative that if you start hormones within the first five years of menopause, you are likely to have lots of benefits like improvement in cardiovascular health, improvement in bone health, more longevity, less diabetes, less weight gain, things like that. Um, if you start it five years after the last menstrual period, so basically the body has lost its estrogen stores and supplies. And at that point, you're probably starting to see some evidence in the cardiovascular system um, of atherosclerosis and hardening the arteries and things like that. Um, so if you wait five years, then giving someone estrogen might cause them to throw a clot or have a, a cardiac event, like a heart attack or a stroke. So now what we're seeing with brain health and dementia is really similar to that cardiovascular data that is like 10, 15 years old now. What we're finding is that women who take hormone therapy around the time of menopause have much, much less dementia later in life. Some studies show up to 40%, but it doesn't really work if you take it later. The, the decision to take hormone therapy should be done around the time of perimenopause. And another really important piece of this, this puzzle is that we know that the more estrogen a woman's brain is exposed to throughout her life, um, the lower her risk of age-related cognitive decline. Meaning the earlier you go through menopause, the more dementia you might expect to have. Um, if you have your ovaries removed um, before the natural age of menopause, especially, which is very common in this country and other places too, um, that is a risk factor for getting dementia or Alzheimer's later. If you go through menopause late, say, you know, after the average age of 51, maybe you go through 55 or 57, that's actually a good thing for your cognitive health later in life. That's so fascinating. And it's actually pretty wild when I was on my OBGYN rotation during third year, how many people in the clinic have gone through a full hysterectomy? Like those right. ovaries are so important. <laughs> well, when I was in practice, I was a huge advocate of retaining ovaries. And of course, a lot of doctors do it because, you know, they, they don't want their patients to get ovarian cancer. Everyone is so scared of ovarian cancer because, you know, we're starting to get better ways to detect it, but traditionally that's not been a good cancer to detect early. And so the, you know, the sort of the conventional wisdom was, well, if you're going to be in there and take out the uterus, just take out the ovaries too, and then you won't have cancer. And of course that's flawed for so many different reasons. I was an advocate of retaining ovaries because I was more focused on menopause and the transition. And I saw how difficult it was for women who went through surgical menopause. Plus I was also worried about their bones. And I was worried about their cardiovascular system. And if I had had the data now, then I would have been really worried about the brains as well. So for some of our younger listeners who are already getting kind of freaked out about Alzheimer's and things like that. What are some foods that are neuroprotective and what are just some broad recommendations that you have for them um, trying to get ahead of a disease like Alzheimer's? Well, you know, the, the mind diet study that I mentioned earlier, we should go into that a little bit more because the researchers who developed it, Dr. Martha Claire Morris and her team at Rush University, they had a really elegant and simple way to describe brain healthy foods. They broke it down into 10 brain healthy food groups and five food groups to avoid. And I found that this is a really great way to approach my classes. And um, I've come up with sort of my own guidelines over time. The Mind Diet study came out in 2015. 
the uh, randomized controlled trial of the MIND diet is supposed to come out this year. So we'll get more data in a placebo controlled manner. But, um, but then, you know, there's been changes to some of those original guidelines even. But by breaking it down into 10 brain healthy food groups, I think is a really, really good way to think about it. And it's not about thinking about what you eat on a daily basis. It's trying to get a certain amount of these food groups in within a week, which I like because you don't, you don't, if you're focused on eating perfectly all the time, it's really not good for your mental health. And it's really not all that achievable. It's exhausting. <laughs> exhausting. I know you don't want to be overly focused on the health of your food. Um, but if you think about it over the course of um, a week, it's very doable. So for example, um, the mind diet is a spinoff of the Mediterranean diet. And most people are familiar with the Mediterranean diet pyramid. And what the researchers did was they looked at the Mediterranean diet which has many, many studies that shows it will enhance longevity, reduce cardiovascular risk, reduces dementia, improves memory with age, all of those things. Um, and they said, what if we just take the brain healthiest food groups from the Mediterranean diet study? And that became the MIND diet. It's a spin-off of the Mediterranean diet. So berries are its own food group in the MIND diet. And that's because berries have the most data to support them, both animal data, population data, human data, you know, data on memory and cognitive function, data on Alzheimer's prevention, all of that is all there to say that eating berries will reduce your risk of Alzheimer's. Um, so berries is the only fruit that has that data enough sufficiently to call it its own brain healthy food group. And the recommendation for berries is to eat two half cup servings a week, minimum. Now there's other studies that show improvement in memory in older adults when they eat you know, a serving a day. So that's what I usually recommend. Berries are so good, everyone loves them, right? You can get them frozen, you can put them in your smoothie, you can get them powdered. I mean, it's kind of a no brainer, um, except that sometimes they're expensive and sometimes they're highly seasonal. Um, but if you can try to eat berries every single day, that's like number one thing you can do that's got tons of data, a mountain of data behind it to prove that it'll be good for your brain. Um, another brain healthy food group is leafy greens. So in the Mediterranean diet, they, they lump fruits and vegetables and leafy greens all under the same umbrella. But in the mind diet, they separate out leafy greens and vegetables and berries as their own separate food groups. Leafy greens are so crucial. Um, there's MRI data that shows that if you eat, you know, just one serving a day, like maybe one cup raw, which is a small salad a day, um, your brain will look 11 years younger in MRI than someone who only eats salads rarely. Yeah, one of the really exciting things about brain health nutrition now is that we're getting MRI data to show that certain dietary patterns, even certain foods like leafy greens, have an impact over time. So leafy greens is another one. That's easy, right? I don't know that many people that won't eat a salad these days. And it doesn't even have to be a salad. It could be herbs and a pesto. It could be, um, you know, greens that you saute in a pan, like collard greens. It could be something. Morning like smoothie. Yeah, that totally. Handful, smoothie. handful of baby spinach in your smoothie is such a good way to get your leafy greens. Um, vegetables, you know, there's certain vegetables that stand out. The recommendation in the MIND diet is to have a serving of vegetables every day. Um, based on the latest data in the last couple of years, I would bump that up to three servings of vegetables a day if you can. A serving size is roughly um, a half cup cooked, one cup raw. It's really not that much. It's 
there's so many uh, studies coming out now about flavonoids. Flavonoids are the nutrients in plant pigments. It's the things that make fruits and vegetables colorful, like the, it's the purple in the eggplant skin. You know, it's the blue and the blueberry. It's what makes, um, you know, red peppers red. All these plant pigments are flavonoids, which we now have studies that show that they're crucial for brain health nutrition and crucial for preventing Alzheimer's. So that's why I would bump up um, the berries, bump up the strings of vegetables. Um, plus vegetables are a great source of fiber, which we're finding is a really important ingredient in any kind of brain healthy dietary pattern. Um, when you think about plant nutrients and all the nutrients you get from the foods that you eat, they have to get a way to be absorbed. That's why, you know, processed foods, you, even if they're given and fortified with different nutrients, those nutrients aren't likely to be absorbed because of the whole issue of bioavailability, which I'm sure you guys all know about. So the, to make the nutrients more bioavailable, I think of them as piggybacking onto the back of fiber molecules because fiber is like the one thing that can pass entirely through your digestive tract. And along the way, these nutrients have all these different opportunities for being absorbed. So fiber is a hugely important um, component of all the brain healthy food groups. So those are the top ones. The other ones are whole grains. And we're not talking about, you know, just, you know, white rice, white bread, pizza crust, hamburger buns. Those are the types of grains that most Americans eat. 98% of the grains that Americans eat are from refined processed flour. And it basically hits your bloodstream just like sugar. Um, it contributes to insulin resistance and increased risk of diabetes. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that Alzheimer's part of the part of the road to Alzheimer's is an insulin resistant state that sets up in the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. So we try not to use eat any of those white foods with whole grains. I mean, unrefined grains in their whole form, if possible, things like brown rice, black rice, quinoa, farro, wheat berries, um, frica. There's all sorts of really cool grains now you can get at the market. They're super easy to cook up in a, in a, like a rice cooker or just steam on top of the stove or an instant pot. And um, these whole grains are, should be like the bulk of, you know, what you're eating in terms of grains. The recommendations of the MIND diet are three half cup servings a day of whole grains. Wow. Oats is another one that's really important. Oats are really easy, cheap, great everyday food for most people. Um, I know that there's some discussion about grains and like the pesticide use on them in, in comparison to other countries in Europe and such, and potentially like having more gluten sensitivity on some of these wheats or, or some of these grains that are sold in the U S versus in Europe. Um, what's your take on that? And should we be more mindful of some like whole grains that potentially still have some pesticide residue on them? Absolutely. I would be very concerned about the pesticide residue on foods, although pesticides have not been directly linked to Alzheimer's. Um, they are proven to um, have oxidative burden on brain cells and basically incite inflammation in the body and the brain. And the thinking with Alzheimer's nowadays is just that it's, you know, uh, environment of chronic inflammation over time is what sets you up for Alzheimer's. And pesticides probably add so much to that in our current environment of eating. So I don't buy everything organic, um, but I always buy my grains organic. And that's why, especially oats, especially things like that, oats and wheat that 
you know are just laden with pesticides. And it's really, really hard to get rid of that um, in the cooking or washing process. Another really important one is rice because uh, rice can sometimes contain traces of arsenic, which is not a big deal unless you eat a lot of rice. Um, but if you get organic brands um, from California, they actually have a really good quality control where they don't have as much arsenic in the soil and you can be a lot um, more assured that you're not gonna get that much arsenic residue in your food either. Mm. Wow. Let's talk about sugar and let's talk about dairy if we can. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, most of us know that it's bad, but what is your more specific opinion on certain aspects of dairy and then is sugar a no all the time? Well, okay, let's start with dairy. That's an excellent question. And it's not that dairy products have been proven to be directly detrimental to the brain health or cause Alzheimer's or anything like that. However, what the thing that damages the brain over time is a heavy load of saturated fat in the diet. And dairy products are a huge source of saturated fat, especially in the American diet. Americans love saturated fat. I mean, we're trying to, we're starting to get rid of the trans fats because, you know, it's being mandated that they get out of grocery stores and out of restaurants. So that's great, but we're still stuck with saturated fat. Saturated fat is not only directly inflammatory to blood vessels and brain cells, it also can lead to the type of cardiovascular damage that closes off small arteries to the brain and reduces blood flow and can predispose you to forming little clots. So there's one form of dementia that's caused from lots of little clots over time. We used to call it multi-infarct dementia, and now it's basically just called vascular dementia. But the cardiovascular system is such a huge component of you know, keeping a healthy brain health later. We think that at least half of all people with Alzheimer's disease probably have vascular dementia as well. And there's a direct dietary link to the amount of saturated fat in your diet and your risk for getting both Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease. Dr. Martha Claire Morris did the best study on this where she showed a direct link between the fat fat in the diet and your risk of Alzheimer's. So the brain healthy diet, as far as I interpret it, it's not a low fat diet at all. It's actually rich in monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats like omega-3 fatty acids, but it's very low in saturated fat. And one way to get rid of the sat fat in the diet is to limit the butter, to limit the cheese, to um, transition from whole milk and dairy type milks to plant-based milks, which there's so many now and they're really wonderful and kind of like, you know, fun to try and tasty and add other things as well. Like for example, when you switch from a whole, a full fat milk, a dairy product to something like an almond milk, you're not only getting rid of a lot of the saturated fat, you're getting more of the specific brain health nutrients, the antioxidants from the nuts or the seeds in it. And the problem with milk, you know, the way that it's processed, you know, you can take the fat out of the milk and have a non-fat milk or low fat milk. So you've taken care of the, the, the you know, the saturated fat problem. But then you, you lose all the nutrients in the process too. A lot of the nutrients in dairy products rely on fat to be absorbed. You know, like you guys learned in medical school, there's fat soluble vitamins, D, E, A, and K. Those are crucial, right? So you can take non-fat milk, fortify it with D and A, but I'm not so sure that that's getting absorbed as well as it could be um, in another type of source. 
So, you know, I do a lot of cooking and teaching in the Brain Health Kitchen about alternatives to dairy. I mean, we make cashew-based cheeses. Um, I make a crumbly Parmesan cheese-like uh, topping from walnuts. And um, I make lots of nut milks, which are really delicious, uh, really fun to make, really delicious, really easy. And it just replaces so much of that saturated fat in the diet. I try to keep the saturated fat content under 5%. And then another brain healthy uh, food group is fish and seafood. And of course the really important nutrients we get from fish and seafood is the polyunsaturated fatty acids, the omega-3 fatty acids like DHA and EPA, which are absolutely crucial for long-term brain health. Um, it's one of the things I worry most about when people tell me that they have a completely whole food plant-based diet, which I think is great. I think you can have a very brain healthy whole food plant-based or vegan diet but I do worry about the DHA because you can really only get that from fish and seafood. Okay. Interesting. And I know that people are saying that you can get DHA and EPA and the good omega-3 fatty acids from things like walnuts or flax seeds, not as much. It has to be from well, the, fish. Well, you get it from converting. There's the plant-based omega-3 is ALA, alpha linoleic acid. And there's a conversion of ALA to DHA and EPA, but it's a very small percentage. I think it's around 5%. So you have to eat a lot of walnuts, a lot of hemp seeds, a lot of pumpkin seeds, a lot of chia seeds. It's fine. I mean, if you have a whole food plant-based diet, you probably are eating a lot of this stuff anyways, as am I always, because I love it. And it's such a good, good brain health, you know, component to the diet, but that DHA is just, it's just really hard. I would recommend that getting it from a supplement form is probably a good idea. If you don't feel like you're getting it from fish or seafood. Okay. Wow. And, um, do you have any thoughts on kefir like fermented dairy? Oh yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I do consume dairy. I actually love really good cheese. I eat yogurt almost every day. Kefir is one of the most potent probiotic cheeses that there are. Um, it's got probably more probiotic colonies than any other food that I know of. So it's great for people who want to, um, you know, address their gut health and maybe cultivate a more diverse microbiome by adding some different colonies into their diet. So I think that's great. I think that fermented dairy products like yogurt have certain advantages. Number one, people can tolerate them better because the, um, the proteins gets digested a little bit, kind of pre-digested by the fermentation process. And number two, they add a lot of, um, diversity to your gut microbiome through the cultures they provide. So, you know, when I buy yogurt, just, I mean, in contrary to everything I just said about fat, <laughs> I, I get full fat yogurt um, because I have it with my berries. And I know that all those phytonutrients are going to be better absorbed with a full fat yogurt. I also like cashew yogurt. I like almond yogurt. I like coconut yogurt. You know, I mix it up, but I do like to have a little bit of fat with my most nutrient dense foods for sure. Okay. Interesting. And is that Greek yogurt or is that just regular full fat yogurt? Yeah. I like them both. I like Greek yogurt because it's higher in protein and uh, it's nice and creamy. You know, a lot of times, I mean, I don't eat a lot of, so much meat anymore and I'm trying to get mostly plant-based sources of my protein. So um, yeah, I like, I like that extra dose of protein, especially after working out. Okay. Perfect. So for some of those people that don't realize that their brain isn't working optimally, they just have no idea what it's really like because, you know, whether they've been eating the wrong things their whole life or, you know, whatever type of inflammatory, um, things might be going on in their brain. How do you, 
convince people that you work with that like what you eat really affects your brain? What's your elevator pitch to them? Oh gosh, it's so difficult because you don't, it's like one of those things where you don't really know that you're coming down with a cold until you're in the throes of it. So those prodromal stages are so much denial going on too. And people tend to be like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't feel that badly. And you don't really know it until your health is, is back and fully robust. So it's really hard, um, I think, for people going through it to realize that they're not at their optimal brain function. Um, I think for a lot of the people in our profession, it's lack of sleep, it's poor diet, it's stress, and it's, and it's um, dehydration. I think those, those are huge factors. Um, you literally cannot function at an optimal level without adequate sleep, even though we all learn to do so as a doctor. Um, we get really good at functioning at a very high level with low levels of sleep. But after a while, that really does take your toll on you. Could you imagine um, how well we do with good sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that after, um, after going through med school and residency and then 20 years of practice, my first half of my practice, I was solo doing OB. I literally never slept. Um, when I did finally retire, I could not believe the change that having a healthy sleep cycle was in my life. I just couldn't believe it. I had never, I hadn't slept since I was probably 16. Um, <laughs> but getting back to the food, the food piece, you know, I think it's just really hard to, unless you can convince someone to get rid of some of the worst things in their diet. Like nobody feels great after they eat a high fat, high salt, high protein meal like say a cheeseburger and fries. No one actually really feels like going for a five mile walk after that. But when you eat like a, you know, a, a, a well-balanced, what I would call a brain healthy meal, you know, I can have dinner and then I can go for a hike. I can feel great. You just don't, you just don't feel as well when, when you have so much saturated fat basically being downloaded into your cardiovascular system in a short period of time. Um, and everyone knows it makes you sleepy, you know, you get that big GI shunt of blood after eating a fatty meal. Um, and you just don't feel that way. And you start to eat, you know, with a little bit more intention. So there's that that can be tried. Um, you know, the other thing is, was with breakfast, some people need to eat breakfast every day and that's great. And other people feel fantastic if they don't. So I think there's an individual piece here and how different people metabolize their food. Um, intermittent fasting has been shown to, um, you know, really help people focus and, and have more energy during the first half of the day. And so a lot of people are big fans of it. Um, whereas other people are really big fans of eating like a big solid substantial meal. And in America, that could be a bacon and egg sandwich. It could be a breakfast burrito. It could be one of those things that just really like slows you down your metabolism just when you're starting to get revved up. So I would maybe talk to them about messing around with different patterns of eating. Maybe dabbling in fasting would be a way to wake up the brain and see how you feel without um, all those shunts on your energy throughout the day. Yeah. And I, I think that you mentioned specifically that in the, um, the study where you were listing the 10 top 10 foods to eat, there were five foods that you should avoid, which are, what are the five like food groups that we should be avoiding? Well, they're basically all high in saturated fat, sugar, which we can get into, um, and also salt. So the first one is processed and fried foods, fast foods, 
basically anything from a fast food restaurant, um, anything that comes in a box, anything that has more ingredients than seems prudent or ingredients that sound like chemicals. Um, those are all, we all know what they are. Now we're calling them ultra processed food because they're so far removed from the whole food that they don't even resemble that anymore. So just cutting out processed, fast and fried food is probably one of the hugest things someone can do to clean up their diet and feel better and have better brain function right away. That's probably like the number one thing, honestly. Um, the other one is red meat. In the MIND diet, they recommend not eating more than four servings of red meat a week which is not very much for an American diet. Um, a serving is small here, it's three ounces. So it's about the size of a deck of cards. So that is um, a radical change for some people. For some people that sounds like a lot of meat, right? And for others, it's like they eat meat at every meal. So it's really not much meat at all. Um, and now studies are getting into, you know, some meats better than others, right? It's the processed meat that are really the worst culprits for our health. They're the ones that are cured and fried and you know given nitrate and added chemicals those are the ones that are most inflammatory to blood vessels and brain cells um, there's other meat that probably is not that bad for you you could have in small amounts and it won't be detrimental to your health um, grass-fed beef for example wild game um, any type of meat that is not fed corn or soy or some other gmo product that's akin to junk food diet for an animal um, so I think being really intentional, if you do eat meat about the type of meat that you choose, um, I think that meat should be expensive, rare, small portions, highly flavorful. Um, it should not be an everyday food. So my diet said red meat was the second one. The third one, and this makes a lot of people <laughs> really unhappy when I share this is butter. My diet recommends less than a tablespoon a day of butter. And for some people that seems like, wow, that's not much butter. Um, I pretty much stopped cooking with butter, baking with butter when the Mind Diet study came out. And I have to say, I don't really miss it. Olive oil is one of the brain healthy food groups. So olive oil is rich in monounsaturated fats. It's rich in polyunsaturated fats. It also has polyphenols, which are particularly brain healthy. Um, olive oil is something you should eat a little bit every day of. I pretty much taken all of my cooking in the direction where I can use olive oil instead of butter. And now if I have a piece of butter on, you know, on toast or something, it tastes like, like the best butter I've ever had. It's like so rich and flavorful if you haven't had it in a long time. Um, so cutting back on butter is a big one. Also margarines and all those fake butters, you know, are not advisable. The other one is cheese. The Mind Diet recommends that you don't eat more than a couple ounces of cheese a week. They actually said less than one ounce of cheese in the original study. And now the Mind Diet trial, they bumped it up to two ounces, which is basically an ounce is a one inch cube of cheese. It's not very much. It's not even I, one pizza slice. <laughs> not even a pizza <laughs> slice. Um, so because cheese is a huge source of saturated fat in the American diet. Um, you know, Americans like to slather everything with cheese. Like when you go to Italy, you would expect to see everything slathered with cheese, like eggplant parm and pasta, and, but it's not. You know, cheese is, cheese is served often after the meal as a dessert, and it's very small portions of highly flavorful, rich cheeses. They're special foods. They're not for everyday, all day long consumption, like, like they are used here. So I'm a big advocate of getting people out of the habit of snacking on cheese, cheese and crackers when you come home from work, 
I mean, my husband and I used to do that. It's not a good habit. Um, sometimes I will use a little bit of Parmesan cheese or a little bit of feta, um, you know, as a sort of a, just a flavor bomb for a dish. And just like the butter, we're not using cheese a lot. It really adds a lot of flavor. Wow. That's, that's interesting. And yeah, I think some people will have a hard time <laughs> processing that, but slow, small steps. <laughs> um, so I, I did want to get into this question about um, different cultural cuisines. So I know that there's been a lot of study on the Mediterranean diet, but, and we, we always say that the Mediterranean diet is really healthy and all the staples of the Mediterranean diet is healthy. And we've extrapolated from there, but I feel like a lot of times that's just because that's the diet has, that has been studied. Um, and so for people who have a cultural, different cultural background, and so we have those kind of local cuisines, like is there other healthy aspects to other people's diets and cuisines? And do we have to all transition to eating like the Mediterranean diet? Oh, it's such a good question. I'm really glad that you brought this up because, you know, I talk a lot about the Mediterranean diet because I like to present evidence-based information. Um, and there's been so much study on the Mediterranean diet, but that's really kind of a biased viewpoint of healthy eating is to focus only on, you know, basically a white person's diet, the Mediterranean countries are predominantly white and there are other healthy dietary patterns in the world. Um, there's the Asian dietary pattern. There's the African dietary pattern. They actually have their own food pyramid as well, like the Mediterranean one. And the base of that is dark leafy greens. There's some greens in the African traditional diet that, you know, we've probably never even heard of as well as grains and they're super nutrient dense. The trick is you have to go back, um, many, many decades to get to these dietary patterns because not many people in the world are still following them today. And when you look at some of the cultures that are staying very close to the traditional ways, like the um, Hazat in, um, tribe in Africa, for example, um, they have a high mortality rate from infectious disease. And so it's really hard to study longevity in Alzheimer's in these populations. The ones that do reach older ages have very low incidence of the lifestyle diseases we see like Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart attack, stroke, et cetera. Um, but there's just not as many of them to study. So there's this difficulty in studying a lot of these traditional foods. But one of my axioms for choosing a brain healthy food, um, you know, sure it should be nutrient dense, sure it should be a brain, contain brain friendly fats and lots of phytonutrients um, and lots of fiber to aid the absorption, but also should be a good fit in the way you like to eat, um, where you are from, how it connects you to your ancestors, to your family, to your friends, to the people that grew or raised the food. And a lot of this gets down to our ethnic backgrounds and the things that make sense to us as people. Um, like for me, it makes sense to take Sicilian American food and make it really brain healthy. It just it's just food that I crave. It's food that I love. It reminds me of my grandparents and it, and it feels good to eat it. It just, it just feels like the right kind of dietary pattern for me. Um, for you, it might be using more Asian staples, you know, eating more oily fish, like in Portugal where anchovies and sardines are so important, mackerel and things like that. Um, you know, Asian vegetables, soy products, all of those things can be part of a traditional diet. So I think that this comes to the whole issue of how dietary patterns can be personalized. I mean, sure, I think there's a brain healthy umbrella 
um, ways to stick within guidelines that we know will reduce your risk of Alzheimer's risk and give you better brain function now. Um, but also, like if you look at the way you like to eat, the way your ancestors like to eat, and choose the traditional foods that maybe your grandparents grew up with, I think that's a really good way to think about brain health nutrition. And the studies will come later, hopefully. It's hard to study nutrition in a very long to do in a way, but hopefully those studies will come. Yeah. Well, that's, that was a beautiful answer. I appreciate your perspective on that. So lastly, we ask every guest on the podcast to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, okay. I may be biased, but I would say the future is top down health. And top down means if you're making your brain health a priority, you are going to live longer. You're going to be less likely to get age-related cognitive decline, which is happening in huge proportions now. And you're going to be happier throughout your entire life. So I think making brain health a priority actually takes care of all these other aspects in your life. And brain health nutrition is also the same type of dietary pattern that will reduce your risk of other lifestyle diseases, cardiovascular disease, all, you know, not just Alzheimer's, but cardiovascular um, arthritis, which can be debilitating, um, you know, everything, diabetes, kidney disease, all of these things that uh, Americans are succumbing to in large numbers. I think that if you start with your brain health, and focus on that, the rest will take care of itself. I love that answer. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we've really appreciated talking to you. We were really looking forward to this conversation. And I know that you just um, finished up with a book. So where can people get that? When's it coming out? Oh, thank you. This has been really great to talk with you both. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my book, I just finished writing it. It's a cookbook for brain health. Um, it's coming out next year. We don't have an official publication date yet, but I'll be announcing that very soon. It'll most likely be the fall of 2022. And I want this to be a book that everyone can cook from, regardless of the dietary pattern, whether or not you're whole food plant-based or you're a carnivore or whatever. I want you to be able to find things in here to, to put together your own dietary pattern that makes sense. I want it to be fun and delicious and easy. And there's going to be a lot of science in there too. Oh, amazing. Awesome. We're looking forward to reading that. <laughs> I can't wait to get you a copy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Annie. And thank you for sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Um, we learned a lot and I'm sure that everyone else did too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk.
If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.